Hi, this is Ambria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 6th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Ukraine says it shot down Russia's most sophisticated missile for the first time by Mark Centura. Ukraine used a newly delivered Patriot air defense system to intercept the most sophisticated missile in Russia's arsenal for the first time over Kiev this week, the Ukrainian Air Force said on Saturday. It was the first time Ukraine said that its military had used the advanced American-made missile system long coveted by the Ukrainians. Lieutenant General Mykola Olenshuk, the commander of the Ukrainian Air Force, said that the Patriot system was used to shoot down a hypersonic Kinzhal missile fired by Russia over the capital on Thursday. I congratulate the Ukrainian people on a historic event, General Olenshuk said in a statement. Yes, we have shot down the unparalleled Kinzhal. There was no immediate confirmation from Ukraine's Western allies, including the United States, of the use of the Patriot or whether it had hit a hypersonic missile. The U.S. military's uh, European command did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The Patriot is by far the most expensive single weapon system that the United States, Ukraine's main military benefactor, has supplied to Ukraine at a total cost of about $1.1 billion. $400 million for the system and $690 million for the missiles. Ukraine had been pleading with the Pentagon to provide it with Patriot systems since the start of the war, and the White House approved the request in December. Last month, Ukraine confirmed that the first Patriot systems had arrived. For more than a year, Ukraine had no air defense system that could counter Russia's arsenal of ballistic or hypersonic missiles like the Kinzhal. The powerful explosion that officials said was air defense firing in the skies above central Kiev rattled windows and jolted people out of bed. Fragments from the explosion littered the streets not far from the government quarter in the heart of the city and were collected by teams of forensic experts. General Olenshuk said the military waited to report that the Patriot had been used to protect operational security. He urged the public not to share information about air defenses as they work to counter Russian missiles and drones. We will definitely report what, where, with what, and when it was shot down, he said, all in its own time. While Kiev and other cities across Ukraine have been bombarded with missiles, rockets, drones, and bombs for more than a year, and thousands of civilians have been killed in Russian onslaughts, the repeated attacks on Kiev by Russian drones over the past two weeks have put many in the city on edge. Ukraine has become adept at shooting down Russian cruise missiles and drones, often knocking some 70 to 80 percent of them out of the sky in any particular attack. But the ones that make it through the complex air defense network can do tremendous damage. The Kinzhal, or Dagger, is a modified version of the Russian Army's Iskander short-range ballistic missile, which is designed to be fired from truck-mounted launchers on the ground. Launching the missile from a warplane at high altitude instead of from the ground leaves it with more fuel to use to reach higher speeds. Russia originally developed the Kinzhal to breach American missile defense systems. They are hypersonic, meaning they travel at more than five times the speed of sound, and Russia has hinted at much higher speeds and can maneuver in flight, making them all but impossible to shoot down. Ukraine's Air Force has said that Russia has used around 50 Kinzhals over the course of the war, including during a sustained assault on the Ukrainian energy grid in the fall and winter. Depending on where Russia fires the Kinzhal from, it can reach the Ukrainian capital in a matter of minutes. 
The Patriot system works most effectively as part of what the U.S. military calls a layered defense that includes other air defenses used to down or thwart dro uh, drones and warplanes, as well as a range of cruise and ballistic missiles, U.S. officials say. Its general ability to counter weapons like Russia's Kinzhal hypersonic missile is as yet unknown. Following the U.S. pledge to provide the Patriot systems, Ukrainian soldiers were dispatched to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for a 10-week crash course in how to use them. They completed the training at the end of March, and those soldiers are now training others in Ukraine. One single interceptor missile costs about $4 million, according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each launcher costs around $10 million. After explosions over the Kremlin last week, Russian officials accused Ukraine of staging a drone attack with U.S. guidance and called for aggressive retaliation. Ukrainian officials have said the episode was likely staged by the Russians. Here's what else is happening in Ukraine. Blast wounds a prominent Russian. A car bombing has injured a prominent Russian nationalist writer and killed his driver, Russian state media reported on Saturday. The state-run TASS news agency said the writer, Zakhar Prilipin, was wounded but conscious. Preliminary information showed that an explosive device had been planted under Mr. Prilipin's car in uh, Nizhny Novgorod, TASS reported, but did not say who was believed to be behind the attack. Russification efforts Ukraine's military said on Saturday that the Russian officials are intensifying pressure on Ukrainian civilians in illegally annexed areas to obtain Russian passports, with occupation authorities in the town of Starobilsk uh, going from home to home to enforce a new edict that allows for those who do not cooperate to be removed from their homes. The claim cannot be independently verified. Russia has not allowed international journalists or organizations to access areas under its control. Ukrainian officials said investigators have been gathering evidence in recent days about efforts to enforce people to pledge allegiance to the Russian Federation by getting a passport or be considered foreigners without legal residency. President Vladimir Putin of Russia signed a decree on April 27th that says those who refuse can be deemed a threat and deported according to the policy. Backup Power, A Growing Need If You Can Afford It by Ivan Penn and Peter Evis When frigid weather caused rolling blackouts on Christmas Eve across North Carolina, Eliana and David Mandula quickly grew worried about their two-and-a-half-week-old daughter whom they had brought home days earlier from a neonatal intensive care unit. The temperature was dropping in the house, said Miss Mandula, who lives in Matthews, south of Charlotte. I became angry, but her husband pulled out a small gasoline generator a neighbor had convinced them to buy a couple years earlier, allowing them to use a portable heater and restart their refrigerator, keeping them going for much of the five-hour outage. North of Charlotte, in the town of Cornelius, Gladys Henderson, an 80-year-old former cafeteria worker, was less fortunate. She did not have a generator and resorted to candles, a flashlight, and an old kerosene heater to get through a different recent outage. I lose power just about all the time, Miss Henderson said. Sometimes it goes off and just stays off. Miss Henderson is on the losing end of a new energy divide that is leaving millions of people dangerously exposed to the heat and the cold. As climate change increases the severity of heat waves, cold spells, and other extreme weather, blackouts are becoming more common. In the 11 years to 2021, there were 986 weather-related power outages in the United States, nearly twice as many as in the previous 11 years, according to government data analyzed by Climate Central. 
The average U.S. electric utility customer lost power for nearly eight hours in 2021, according to the Energy Information Administration, more than twice as long as in 2013, the earliest year for which that data is available. Outages are becoming so common that generators and other backup power devices are seen by some as essential. But many people like Ms. Henderson cannot afford generators or the fuel on which they run. Even after strong sales in recent years, Generac, the leading seller of home generators, estimates that fewer than 6% of U.S. homes have a standby generator. Energy experts warn that power outages will become more common because of extreme weather linked to climate change. And those blackouts will hurt more people as Americans buy electric heat pumps and battery-powered cars to replace furnaces and vehicles that burn fossil fuels, a shift essential to limiting climate change. The grids will be more vulnerable, said Najmira Meshkari, an engineering professor at the University of California and an expert in disaster response. That furthers the divide between the haves and the have-nots. The old, the frail, and people who live in homes that are not well protected or insulated are most vulnerable, along with those who rely on electrically powered medical equipment or take medications that need to be refrigerated. Power outages make heat, already a major cause of avoidable deaths, even more of a threat, said Brian uh, Stone Jr., a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He has done research estimating how many people in Atlanta, Detroit, and Phoenix will be exposed to extreme temperatures during power outages. A concurrent event where you have an extensive blackout during a heat wave is the most deadly type of climate threat we can imagine, he said, noting that the cooling centers in those cities would be able to house only a fraction of the people at greatest risk. Ashley Ward, a senior policy associate at Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability, has studied how heat affects communities in North Carolina. Her research indicates that high temperatures cause more preterm births. She said that even healthy people who work in high temperatures often suffer heat-related illnesses, particularly if they cannot cool their homes overnight. A power outage, she said, is in many cases a catastrophic event. The most recent power crisis in North Carolina, the one on Christmas Eve, occurred when the temperature fell to 9 degrees Fahrenheit in the Charlotte area. The state's primary utility, Duke Energy, began cutting power to customers to ensure the grid kept operating after power plants failed and customers cranked up the heat in their homes. About 500,000 homes, or 15% of the company's customers, lost power in North and South Carolina, the first time the utility used rolling blackouts in the Carolinas. The Mandalas have been through other weather-related power outages since moving into their suburban home. After renting generators during previous outages, the couple spent $650 to buy one in August 2020 to keep parts of their four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bathroom house powered. A chorus of engines typically fills their neighborhood when the power fails. It's just the hum of generators, Ms. Mandula said, adding that she never heard generators in the low-income neighborhood of Greensboro, where she grew up. The couple has considered bigger systems like solar with a battery, but those options would cost a lot. Ms. Henderson, the retired cafeteria worker, lives alone in her three-bedroom home. She relies on family, friends, and community groups to help her maintain the house, which gets its electricity from a community-owned utility. Frequent power outages are one of several problems in her historically African-American neighborhood, which also floods frequently. Developers have offered to buy her home, but Ms. Henderson wants to stay put, having lived there for 50 years. My problem really is the electrical problem, Ms. Henderson said. It's very scary. Duke said it was aware of the risks people like Ms. Henderson faced. 
The company tracks recurring outages in vulnerable communities to determine if it should bury power lines to reduce the likelihood of blackouts. The company is also developing and testing strategies to ease the strain on the grid when energy demand exceeds supply. Those approaches include having electric cars send power to the grid and installing smart devices that can turn off appliances, reducing energy use. So when an extreme weather event hits, we have a grid that can withstand it or quickly recover, said Lon Huber, a senior vice president for customer solutions at Duke Energy. Other threats to the grid are harder to protect against. In early December, somebody shot and damaged two Duke substations in Carthage, roughly 90 miles east of Charlotte, cutting off power to thousands of homes for several days. The energy services received panic calls from people whose oxygen machines had stopped working, requiring someone to visit those homes and set up pressurized canisters that don't require power, said the town's uh, fire chief, Brian Tyner. The chief's home doesn't have backup power either, and he estimates that two-thirds of homes in the area don't have generators. We couldn't even justify the price, he said. Backup power systems can be as small as portable gasoline generators that can cost $500 or less. Often found at construction sites and campgrounds, these devices can power only a few devices at a time. Whole home systems fueled with propane, natural gas, or diesel can provide power for days as long as there is fuel available. But these genera generators start at around $10,000, including installation, and can cost much more for bigger homes. Solar panels paired with batteries can provide emissions-free power, but they cost tens of thousands of dollars and typically cannot provide enough to run big appliances and heat pumps for more than just a few hours. Those systems are also less reliable during cloudy, rainy, or snowy days when there isn't enough sunlight to fully recharge batteries. Some homeowners who are eager to cut their carbon emissions, reduce their electric bills, and gain independence from the electric grid have combined various energy systems, often at a substantial cost. Annie Dudley, a statistician from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, slashed her energy consumption a few years ago. She installed a geothermal system which uses the Earth's steady temperature to help heat and cool her home, replacing an aging system that came with the house. She later added 35 solar panels on her roof and two Tesla home batteries, which can provide enough power to meet most of her needs, including charging an electric Volkswagen Golf. The neighborhood has lost power a whole lot, but I have not, Ms. Dudley said. She spent about $52,000 on her solar panels and batteries, but $21,600 of that cost was defrayed by rebates and tax credits. Ms. Dudley estimates that her utility bills are about $2,300 a year lower because of that investment in her geothermal system. Generator companies believe that growing electricity usage and the threat of outages will keep demand high for their products. Last year, Generac had $2.8 billion in sales to U.S. homeowners, 250% more than what they had in 2017. In recent years, many people bought generators to ensure outages would not interrupt their ability to work from home, said Aaron Jagfeld, the chief executive of Generac. Many people also bought uh, generators because of severe weather, including an extreme heat wave in 2021 in the Pacific Northwest and winter storm Uri, which caused days of blackouts in Texas and killed an estimated 246 people. People are thinking about this, Mr. Jagfeld said. In the context of the broader changes in climate and how that might be impacting not only the reliability of power, but the things that they need that power provides. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service.
The Coronation Live updates. Charles III is crowned king. Last updated roughly around 1.45 p.m. Here is what to know about King Charles III's coronation. Britain's Charles III was crowned king on Saturday during an 8th century ritual in a 24th century metropolis with a handful of concessions to the modern age, but the unabashed pageantry of a fairy tale unseen since the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, his mother, in 1953. I come not to be served, but to serve, Charles said in his first remarks of the ceremony, setting the theme for the intimate yet grand proceedings. The king, 74, was anointed with holy oil, symbolizing the sacred nature of his rule. He was vested with an imperial mantle, and the Archbishop of Canterbury placed the ancient crown of St. Edward onto his head. Tens of thousands of people crowded into central London, despite rain, for a glimpse of the king and queen who traveled from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey in the Diamond Jubilee State Coach, escorted by four divisions of the Household Mounted Cavalry Regiment. A smattering of anti-monarchy protests also marked the day. London's Metropolitan Police said they arrested 52 people on Saturday, most for offenses that appeared connected to the coronation of Charles III, including affray, public order offenses, breach of the peace, and conspiracy to cause a public nuisance. Protesters and rights groups denounced the arrests. Here is what to know about the coronation events. Even in a country accustomed to royal spectacle, the procession after the coronation on Saturday beggared description. 19 military bands and 4,000 troops stretching a mile from the palace gates. The king and his family appeared on the balcony as aircraft, fire, fighter jets, and helicopters roared overhead in a display that is, by custom, the grand finale of a royal celebration. During the service, Charles swore to uphold the Church of England, although the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Most Reverend Justin Welby, encouraged the king to foster an environment in which people of all faiths and beliefs can live freely. It was one of several modifications to the liturgy as the church and Buckingham Palace sought to adapt a thousand-year-old service to today's pluralistic world. The approximately 2,300 people attending the ceremony included new faces, old lineages, world leaders, pop music icons, and others. A coterie that spoke to Charles's efforts to embrace a modern multicultural Britain, but also to the monarchy's dynastic identity. After years of family tensions, Prince Harry attended his father's coronation alone. Harry's wife, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, stayed at home in California with the couple's children, Prince Archie, who turned four on Saturday, and one-year-old Princess Lilibet. Even with a heavy crown, Camilla seems lighter in her new role, by Sarah Lyle. First, she was the royal mistress, reviled by much of Britain for her role as a spoiler in the doomed marriage of Charles and his first wife, the late Diana, Princess of Wales. There were three of us in this marriage, Diana declared in 1995, so it was a bit crowded. Then she was a royal bride, finally married to Charles in a pared down, at least as far as royal ceremonies go, wedding in 2005. As a culmination of a decades-long relationship between two middle-aged people who genuinely loved each other despite many obstacles, such as other spouses, their marriage represented the triumph of an experience over hope. And now she is Queen Camilla, her previous title of Queen Consort having apparently been jettisoned nearly overnight. Today's coronation represented not just the moment that Charles has finally ascended to the role he has been waiting for his whole life, 
but also the final act in a long rehabilitation of the former Camilla Parker Bowles. It was interesting to see her body language during the long coronation ceremony. While Charles seemed weighed down by responsibility, and it must be said by the heaviness of the crown and the robes and all the things he had to carry, Camilla seemed to get lighter, even buoyant, as she herself was crowned, anointed, but in view of the public not behind the screen like her husband, and given a ring. She looked at ease and happy on her throne, happy to bask in her husband's reflected glory. As the two stood on a Buckingham Palace balcony during the traditional and highly symbolic greeting of the public after the uh, coronation ceremony, Charles seemed to be visibly relaxed, uh, actually making small talk with his wife as the family gathered around him. Alert viewers will have noticed that two ladies, both wearing long white gowns, were near Queen Camilla for most of the coronation ceremony, like bridesmaids at a wedding, and then again on the balcony, quarreling several children into place. They were her sister Annabelle Elliot and a longtime friend Lady Lansdowne. In a nod to the slimmed-down nature of this coronation, they're not called ladies-in-waiting, but ladies-in-attendance, another example of how this ceremony has been updated, but only sort of. Charles is Jamaica's head of state. The island nation may break with the monarchy next year by Emiliano Rodriguez Mega. As King Charles III put on the centuries-old St. Edward's crown on Saturday, Jamaica, a Commonwealth member, continued to move ahead with plans to cut ties with the British monarchy, a decision scheduled for a referendum in 2024. Time has come. Jamaica and Jamaican hands. Marlene Malahu Forte, Jamaica's Minister for Legal and Constitutional Affairs, said in an interview with Sky News this week, time to say goodbye. She is part of a 15-member committee of officials and experts that is laying the groundwork to modify Jamaica's constitution and remove the British monarch as the Caribbean island's head of state. Jamaica was also represented in a letter to King Charles this week in which campaigners from 12 Commonwealth nations urged him to use his coronation to apologize for the horrific impacts of Britain's imperialist past, including racism, oppression, colonialism, and slavery. The letter called for reparations and the return of all stolen cultural artifacts. The British have a great opportunity to address colonial injustices, said Rosalia Hamilton, co-signer of the letter and founder of, a founding director of the Institute of Law and Economics. Having led the world with this inhumanity for centuries, they can lead the world in repairing the damage. Although its practical role in the island's affairs might be minute, the monarchy has left an uncomfortable legacy. All of the queen's and now the king's functions are performed by a governor general acting as their direct representative, assenting to all legislation and determining who becomes prime minister. Some people would tell you it's largely ceremonial, but I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it, said Tracy Robinson, a constitutional law professor at the University of the West Indies. It reflects the old prerogative power of the crown. On the British government's part, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has declined to apologize for the country's role in the transatlantic slave trade or to engage in discussions about paying reparations. Trying to unpick our history is not the right way forward, he told lawmakers in Britain's parliament in April, and is not something that we will focus our energies on. Still, the constitutional reform process is prompting more people in Jamaica to think even beyond ditching the British monarch. When we say we wish to get rid of the monarchy, that tells you only the starting point, Mrs. Robinson said during a public panel this week. It does not tell you the destination or where we'll end up. Among the question that looms, if Charles III is out as Jamaica's head of state, what kind of political system would ensue? 
We've never quite asked and answered those questions before, said Ms. Hamilton, who chairs the Advocates Network, an organization that has urged a national discussion around transitioning to a republic. Can we, for the first time in our history, really conceive of reshaping the society in the interests of the majority? Clear answers are elusive. So far, the government's committee, which has said that a draft bill will be presented to Parliament this month, has mostly met in private. If the legislation is not drafted with significant public participation, said Maziki Tame, a researcher at the University of West Indies, the decision-making could end up in the hands of a few. That would fall short of what many Jamaicans expect. Don't get me wrong, I think it's very important that you have our people in power, she said. At the same time, I want it to have substance as representative of a democratic move. Bank turmoil is paving the way for even bigger shadow banks by Lauren Hirsch. Whipsaw trading and shares of regional banks this week made it clear the fallout from the three federal bank seizures was far from over. Some investors are betting against even seemingly healthy banks like PacWest, and regulators are gearing up to tack on new capital constraints for small and medium-sized lenders. Large banks, though raking in cash, are facing their own constraints, saddled with loans written before interest rates started rising. That means businesses, large and small, may soon need to look elsewhere for loans. And a growing cohort of non-banks, which don't take deposits, including giant investment firms like Apollo Global Management, Aries Management, and Blackstone, are chomping at the bit to step into the vacuum. For the last decade, these institutions and others like them have aggressively scooped up and extended loans, helping to grow the private credit industry sixfold since 2013 to $850 billion, according to the financial data provider Prequin. Now, as other lenders slow down, the large investment firms see an opportunity. It's actually good for players like us to step into the breach where, you know, everybody else has vacated the space, Rishi Kapoor, a co-chief executive of Investacor, said on the stage of the Milken Institute's global conference this week. But the shift in loans from banks to non-banks comes with risk. Private credit has exploded partly because its providers are not subject to the same financial regulations put on banks after the financial crisis. What does it mean for America's loans to be moving to less regulated entities at the same time the country is facing a potential recession? The rise of the shadow banks. Institutions that make loans but aren't banks are known, much to their chagrin, as shadow banks. They include pension funds, money market funds, and asset managers. Because shadow banks don't take in deposits, they're not subject to the same regulations as banks, which allows them to take greater risks, and so far their riskier bets have been profitable. Returns on private credit since 2000 exceeded the public benchmark by 300 basis points, according to Hamilton Lane, an investment management firm. These big returns make private credit an appealing business for institutions that once focused mostly on private equity, particularly when interest rates were low. Apollo, for example, now has more than $392 billion in its alternative lending business. Its affiliate, Atlas SP Partners, recently provided $1.4 billion in cash to the beleaguered bank PacWest. Blackstone has $291 billion in credit and insurance assets under management. Private equity firms are also some of Shadow Banks' biggest customers. Because regulations limit how many loans banks can keep on their books, Banks have stepped back from underwriting leveraged buyouts as they struggle to sell debt that they committed before interest rates rose. 
We've demonstrated over time to be a reliable form of capital that's really emerged at the forefront as banks, in this environment at least, have uh, retrenched. Mark Jenkins, head of global credit at Carlisle, told DealBook, Direct lending may get another boost as regional banks pull back, particularly in commercial real estate like office buildings, where landlords may be looking to refinance at least $1.5 trillion in mortgage contracts over the next two years, Morgan Stanley analyst estimates. America's regional banks have accounted for about three-quarters of these kinds of loans, Morgan Stanley's research shows. Real estate is going to have to find a new home, and I think private credit firms are a pretty large place for that. Michael Patterson, governing partner at HPS Investment Partners, told DealBook. More broadly, he said, reduced credit availability for corporates, large and small, is a thing, and I think private credit is a big part of that solution. Untested territory. Direct lending at this scale has never been tested. Nearly all its decade-long growth has happened amid cheap money and outside the pressures of a recession. The industry's opacity means it's nearly impossible to know what fault lines exist before they break. At the same time, shadow lenders are increasingly extending credit to firms that traditional banks won't touch, like small and mid-sized enterprises. These aren't necessarily companies with credit ratings, Cameron Joyce, the deputy head of research insights at Prequin, told DealBook. And while private credit firms market themselves as able to offer more creative credit and move faster in doing so, that agility comes at a cost. These firms often command a higher rate and tougher terms than their more traditional peers. Many of the new shadow bank market makers are fair-weather friends, Jamie Dimon, the chief executive of J.P. Morgan, uh, wrote in an annual letter. They do not step in to help clients in tough times. Some worry that could mean swifter foreclosures on businesses that tap their loans. On regulators' radar, in Washington, shadow banks have been a point of focus, if not quite alarm, for years. As credit conditions tighten, they're getting an even closer look. The IMF has called for tougher regulatory oversight, and the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said last month that she wanted to make it easier to designate non-banks as systematically important, which would enable regulators to tighten scrutiny. But given the urgency of the regional bank crisis, there may be little appetite to further disrupt what could be an increasingly fragile financial system. I don't know that they pose the same kind of risks that the big wipeout of a lot of regional banks would pose, Ron Klain, the former White House chief of staff, said about shadow banks. I think it's something that people will keep their eyes on. Industry insiders argue that many private credit firms are just as friendly to borrowers and focused on repeat uh, customers as banks are. These firms have no depositors, so only their investors would be hurt by a bad bet, they say. Because they are not lending against customer cash, a form of leverage, they are not vulnerable to run on the bank. Our clients and counterparties have learned uh, there is inherent safety in dealing with us, Blackstone's chief executive Steve Schwartzman told us in March. We don't operate with the risk profile of financial firms that have fallen into trouble, almost always due to the combination of a highly leveraged balance sheet and a mismatch of assets and liabilities. But problems at private funds have in the past caused pain beyond the firm, like when long-term capital management collapsed in 1998, bringing down markets across the globe. The more shadow banks lend to each other, the more interconnected they become, augmenting the risk of a cascading effect that could ripple into the broader economy. They will say, we have a good control on our risk, but you generate these returns somehow, these higher returns, said Andrew Park, a senior policy analyst at the Advocacy Group Americans for Financial Reform. 
There is no free lunch on that. Hearing aids are changing. Their users are too. By Neelam Bora. Ayla Wing's middle school students don't always know what to make of their 26-year-old teacher's hearing aids. The most common response she hears, oh, my grandma has them too. But grandma's hearing aids were never like this. Bluetooth enabled and connected to her phone, they allow Miss Wing to toggle with one touch between custom settings. She can shut out the world during a screeching subway ride, hear her friends in noisy bars during a night out, and understand her students better by switching to mumbly kids. A raft of new hearing aids have hit the market in recent years, offering greater appeal to a generation of young adults that some experts say is both developing hearing problems earlier in life and perhaps paradoxically becoming more comfortable with an expensive piece of technology pumping sound into their ears. Some of the new models, including Miss Wings, are made by traditional prescription brands, which usually require a visit to a specialist. But the Food and Drug Administration opened up the market last year when it allowed the sale of hearing aids over the counter. In response, brand names like Sony and Jabra began releasing their own products, adding to a new wave of designs and features that appeal to young customers. These new hearing aids are sexy, said Pete Belzerian, a 25-year-old in Richmond, Virginia, who has worn the devices since he was seven. He describes his early models as distinctly unsexy. Big, funky, tan-colored hearing aids with the molding that goes all around the ear. But increasingly, those have given way to sleeker, smaller models with more technological capabilities. Nowadays, he said, no one seems to notice the electronics in his ear. If it ever does come up as a topic, I just brush it off and say, hey, I got these very expensive AirPods. More people in Mr. Bilzerian's age group might need the equivalent of expensive AirPods, experts say. By the time they turn 30, about a fifth of Americans today have had their hearing damaged by noise, the CDC and Prevention recently estimated. This number adds to the already substantial population of young people with hearing loss tied to genetics or medical conditions. The exact number of young adults who need or use hearing aids is difficult to pinpoint, but both device manufacturers and medical experts say that population is growing. The leading prescription aid manufacturer, Phonak, says the number of Americans between the ages of 22 and 54 who have been fitted with the company's hearing aids increased by 14%, more than the increase for users of all other ages between 2017 and 2021. Anecdotally, we have seen more young people over the past decade pursuing hearing protection. This seems to be much more mainstream, which is great, Dr. Catherine V. Palmer, Director of Audiology and Hearing Aids at the University of Pittsburgh said. Experts say there are several reasons that hearing aids are closing the generation gap. Attitudes have changed as technology has advanced, leading more young people to be willing to give them a try. And a growing number of 20-somethings may need them as they navigate an increasingly noise-soaked world. More than a billion young people worldwide risk noise-induced hearing loss, according to the World Health Organization. But there are still significant barriers. Hearing aids are expensive, especially for people who lack good medical insurance, with most costing $1,000 or more. And the options can be confusing and difficult to navigate. Many models still have to be prescribed by an audiologist. And while the stigma might be fading, it has not entirely vanished. Data collected in 1989 by Mark Track, a consumer research organization that is part of the Hearing Industries of America, suggested that people who wore hearing aids were perceived to be less competent, less attractive, less youthful, and more disabled. Today, though, the organization said in a recent report, hearing aid users rarely or never feel embarrassed or rejected. While the emergence of over-the-counter hearing aids has provided new options, 
It has also made diving into the market more complicated. There are dozens of brands to choose from, ranging from small inner ear pods to those that use long metallic arcs around the ear. Most new models have Bluetooth streaming capacities, and some of the over-the-counter options can be ordered online with free shipping. Blake Cadwell created Soundly, a website that allows users to compare hearing aid brands and prices after trying to navigate the complex market himself. When I started the process, the main thing I experienced was it's difficult to know where to start and how to start. Just figuring out which way was up, said Mr. Cadwell, 32, who lives in Los Angeles. Even just getting a diagnosis for hearing loss can be hard. People who are concerned about their hearing might start at an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and many are referred to audiologists or hearing clinics, where they face a mix of hearing tests, physical exams, or imaging. Julianne Zhu, a 22-year-old international student at New York University, was motivated to get her ears checked after being disturbed by an intense ringing, which was diagnosed as tinnitus from moderate hearing loss. She still has not been sold on hearing aids. An audiologist in the United States recommended them, but her parents and their family doctor in China told her they were only for old people. I just don't know if it's necessary, she said. Ms. Zhu says she probably listened to music too loud, causing her hearing issues. That's an increasingly common concern, according to the Hearing Loss Association, which has called noise-induced hearing loss a growing public health crisis. Though long-term tracking data is not available, the association estimates that 12.5% of Americans between the ages of 6 and 19 have hearing loss as a result of listening to loud music, particularly through earbuds at unsafe volumes. For those who need them, the new wave of the -the over-the-counter aids can be more affordable than many prescription models. That makes them a good first choice for more young people, says Zina Jawadi, 26, who has used hearing aids since she was four, and attends medical school at the University of California, Los Angeles. This is one of the biggest things I've seen in a really long time in this space, she said. Miss Wing, the middle school teacher, said she decided to buy her new hearing aids just months before she would turn 26 and lose access to her parents' health insurance plan. Otherwise, the $4,000 prescription hearing aids would have been unaffordable, she said. Miss Wing worried about the durability and effectiveness of over-the-counter aids compared with her prescription pair which she expects to last at least five years. I wear glasses too, and I can't just get reading glasses from CVS. I have to get them from the eye doctor, she said. It's the same with my hearing aids. Miss Wing says she has many coworkers in their 40s and 50s who could probably benefit from hearing aids, but are worried about negative perceptions. She tries to dispel that. I tell everyone that I know that I have hearing aids, Miss Wing said, just so that the stigma is less. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Before Dylan, there was Connie Converse, Then She Vanished, by Howard Fishman. Connie Converse was a pioneer of what's become known as the singer-songwriter era, making music in the pre-dawn of a movement that had its roots in the Greenwich Village folk scene of the early 1960s. But her songs, created a decade earlier, arrived just a moment too soon. They didn't catch on, and by the time the sun had come up in the form of a young Bob Dylan, she was already gone. Not simply retired, but she had vanished from New York City, as she eventually would from the world, along with her music and legacy. It wasn't until 2004 when an NYU graduate student heard a 1954 bootleg recording of Miss Converse on WNYC 
that her music started to get any of the attention and respect that had evaded her some 50 years before. The student, Dan Zula, and his friend David Herman was spellbound by what they heard. They dug up more archival recordings and assembled the 2009 album, How Sad, How Lovely, a compilation of songs that sound as though they could have been written today. It has been streamed over 16 million times on Spotify. Young musicians like Angel Olsen and Greta Klein now cite Miss Converse as an influence, and musical acts from Big Thief to Laurie Anderson to the opera singer Julia Bullock have covered her songs. She was the female Bob Dylan, Ellen Stiekirk, a singer, folk music scholar, and song collector told me during my research for a book about Miss Converse. She was even better than him, as a lyricist and a composer, but she didn't have his showbiz savvy, and she wasn't interested in writing protest songs. 75 years ago, Miss Converse was just another young artist trying to make ends meet in the city, singing at dinner parties and private salons, and passing a hat for her performances. She knew that her songs did not jibe with the saccharine pop of the day. This type of thing always curdles me like a dentist appointment, she wrote to her brother before an audition, where she predicted what executives would say of her songs. Lovely, but not commercial. In January 1961, the same month that Dylan arrived from the Midwest, Ms. Conifers left New York for Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she reinvented herself as an editor, a scholar, and an activist. In 1974, a week after her 50th birthday, she disappeared and was never seen again. Ms. Conifers lived in New York from 1945 to 1960, and though she was intensely private, she kept a diary, scrapbooks, and voluminous correspondence that were left behind after she drove away for good, offering clues about what the Manhattan chapter of her life was like. Here are some of the neighborhoods, venues, and sites around the city that provided the musician with a backdrop for her short but trailblazing stint as a songwriter. The 1940s, Bohemians of the Upper West Side, Riverside Park. In 1944, after dropping out of Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, Miss Converse moved to New York. Her first job was at the American Institute of Pacific Relations, where she edited and wrote articles about international affairs. I'm struck by the breadth of the topics she covered, said the contemporary international relations scholar Michael R. Anderson, who called her writing and reporting remarkable. She lived on the Upper West Side. The image of her in Riverside Park above was found in an old filing cabinet that belonged to the photographer's widow. It is one of the first known images of Miss Converse in New York. This image is of a woman with a bright smile and glasses on her face. Her pin curls are windblown as she stands in the park with a long coat down to her knees directly in front of the camera. The Lincoln Arcade Some of Miss Converse's closest friends lived and hung around the bohemian enclave known as the Lincoln Arcade, a building on Broadway between West 65th and 66th Street. With a reputation as a haven for struggling artists, it had been home to the painters Robert Henri, Thomas Hart Benton, and George Bellows, the last of whom had lived there with the playwright Eugene O'Neill. The group was a hard-drinking lot, given to holding court late at night. One surviving member of that crew, Edwin Bach, told me that Miss Converse would often be clattering away at a typewriter at a remove from the rest though sometimes she did things he found shocking, like climbing out the front window well past midnight to stand on a ledge several stories above the street. The 1950s, making music in the village and beyond, 23 Grove Street. 
Miss Converse lost her job when the Institute landed in the crosshairs of the anti-communist House Un-American Activities Committee. Sometime late in 1950, she moved to the West Village and began a new phase of her life as an aspiring composer and performer. She bought a Crestwood 404 reel-to-reel tape recorder and began making demos of herself singing new songs as she wrote them. It was here, while living alone in a studio apartment at 23 Grove Street, that Miss Converse wrote almost all her guitar song catalog, including everything on How Sad, How Lovely. The village at that time was the left bank of Manhattan, the writer Gray Tillis told me, and it had whiffs of the future in it, in terms of its permissiveness about lifestyle choices. Nicholas Pelegi, a writer and producer, suggested that given her address, Miss Converse was a loner, would have had no problem hanging out by herself at Chumley's, a former speakeasy. The upstart book publisher Grove Press was also just down the block, and she was close to the Nut Club at Sheridan Square, where jazz musicians often played, as well as the more respectable Village Vanguard. Her first and only television appearance was in 1954 on the morning show on CBS, hosted that year by Walter Cronkite. Though how Miss Converse secured the appearance and what she played and talked about may never be known. Shows at this time were broadcast live. No archival footage exists. Because the program was staged in a studio above the main concourse at Grand Central and shown on a big screen in the hall, everyone bustling through the station that morning could have looked up and caught the young musician's one and only brush with success. Miss Converse was extremely close to her younger brother, Phil. When he visited her in the city for the first time, Miss Converse described the reunion in her irregularly kept diary, noting that the two met like strangers at Grand Central Station and fell to reminiscing over oysters. Hamilton Heights In 1955, Miss Converse took up residence at 605 West 138th Street in Harlem, a block away from Strivers Row. There, she shared a three-bedroom flat with her older brother, Paul, his wife, Hyla, and their infant child, P. Bruce, a situation she called a cost-saving measure. The new apartment had an upright piano, which Miss Converse used to compose an opera, now since lost, a series of settings for poems by writers like Dylan Thomas, E.E. E. Cummings, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and a song cycle based on the myth of Cassandra, who, according to Greek mythology, was given the gift of prophecy and then cursed to never be understood. Circle in the Square An avid theater-goer, Miss Converse attended Jose Quintero's 1956 revival of The Iceman Cometh, which made Jason Robard a star and effectively launched the off-way Broadway movement. Did I mention that I saw an in-the-round production of The Iceman Cometh last month? She wrote to Phil and his wife, Jean, that October. Some four and a half hours of uncut O'Neill, but only the last 15 minutes found me squirming in my seat. The Blue Angel At this erstwhile nightclub on East 55th Street, unique at the time for being disintegrated, Miss Converse met the cabaret singer Annette Warren, who expressed interest in covering Miss Converse's songs, and who would make at least two of them, The Playboy of the Western World and The Witch and the Wizard, staples of her show for decades to come. 1960, The Lost Tape, Goodbye New York National Recording Studios National Recording Studios at 735th Avenue between West 56th and 57th Streets had been open for only a year when Miss Converse showed up in February 1960 to record an album. It was a solo session that, because she did just one or two takes of each tune, only took a few hours. 
The recording was a rumor until 2014 when Phil Converse unearthed a reel of it in his basement. An admin who was a fan of Miss Converse's music had procured the recording session for her for free. That album, the only one she made, remains unreleased. Upper West Side Miss Converse closed the circle of her peripatetic Manhattan existence by moving back to where she started, the Upper West Side. This time, she lived in a brownstone on West 88th Street, a half block from Central Park. This was her last known New York address. By 1961, she was gone. Her music, mostly made in isolation or at small gatherings, was nearly lost, but for the efforts of her brother Phil, who archived what he could, David Garland, who played her music on WNYC in 2004 and 09, and Dan Zula and David Harmon, the students who, decades later, introduced her work to a new generation. The first time I played a Connie Converse song for a friend, she sat silently and cried, Mr. Zula said. From that moment, I knew Connie's magic would reach at least a few more people in a deeply personal and special way. He added, Could I have envisioned her blowing up like this when we first put out the record? Absolutely not. But also, yeah, kind of. In Australia, he was a great father. Secretly, he was an escaped convict by Jesus Jimenez. A grave marker at Tambourine Mountain Cemetery in Queensland, Australia, bears the name John Vincent Damon. For years, until he died on August 6, 2010, at 69, that's how he was known to others, including his family. But his real name was William Leslie Arnold, and he had a secret, dark past that was unbeknown to his wife and two adult children in Australia and three surviving stepdaughters from a previous marriage in the United States. When he was 16 and living in Nebraska in the 1950s, he fatally shot his parents during what was later described as a fight over the use of the family car, and then buried them in the backyard of their home. It took about two weeks before the crime was discovered, authorities said. Mr. Arnold pleaded guilty in 1959 to murdering his parents, and he was sentenced to life in the Nebraska State Penitentiary. In his time there, Mr. Arnold was described by the authorities as a model prisoner, but on July 14, 1967, he and another inmate escaped. The other inmate was soon recaptured, but the authorities couldn't find Mr. Arnold for years, and the case eventually went cold. Over the past couple of years, however, investigators with the United States Marshals Service were able to gather evidence that eventually led them to crack the case through DNA testing. The discovery came as a shock to his surviving family members, who the authorities said were completely oblivious to Mr. Arnold's past. To them, he was John Damon a father and a husband. To the American authorities, he was a convicted killer and escaped inmate. Surviving family members in Australia and stepdaughters of Mr. Arnold in the United States declined to comment. Matt Westover, the U.S. Marshal deputy who cracked the case, said in an interview that connecting Mr. Arnold to John Damon was a process that spanned several years and involved sifting through thousands of pages of documents and investigating several leads across the United States as well as in Brazil and Canada. Several law enforcement agencies over the years had tried to piece together what had happened to Mr. Arnold after he escaped. The FBI investigated the case into the 1990s. Then it was turned over to the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services. Ultimately, it was passed on to the U.S. Marshals and assigned to Mr. Westover in August 2020. I was obsessed with the case, Mr. Westover said. 
Soon after being assigned to the case, Mr. Westover reached out to Jeff Britton, who had worked on the case from 2004 to 2013 when he was with the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services. Mr. Britton, who is now chief of the Office of Law Enforcement Support in California, said that even after he left Nebraska, he continued to look into the case as a hobby. Chief Britton said that he and Mr. Westover talked frequently about it over the past few years. I spent a lot of nights just reading because I was just amazed at all the different information and just trying to find something, some kind of lead, Mr. Westover said. There were plenty of false leads. One theory about Mr. Arnold's whereabouts was that he had fled to Brazil. That was based on an immigration document with Mr. Arnold's name on it issued to someone in Brazil less than two years after the prison escape. But Mr. Westover said Brazilian officials didn't have any record of Mr. Arnold, and it was unclear why his name was on that document. Mr. Westover tracked down an ex-girlfriend of Mr. Arnold, which led to a trove of letters that he had written to her and her family from prison. But there was no correspondence from after his escape that provided any clues as to where he had ended up. Mr. Westover also found a postcard from Canada and one from California with Mr. Arnold's name. Those leads were also fruitless. In a wanted poster for Mr. Arnold, the U.S. Marshal Service said that he was very musically talented and most likely used these skills to financially survive. That detail of his life also did not yield any leads. It just seemed like everything was working against us, Mr. Westover said. Over time, various leads led investigators to determine that after Mr. Arnold escaped prison, he had fled to Chicago, where he started going by his new name, John Damon, and quickly met and married a woman with children. He then began to move around, living in Cincinnati and Miami, according to the Omaha World Herald, which has chronicled Mr. Arnold's life through a series of articles and a podcast. Later, he divorced his wife and moved to California, where he remarried and had children, and eventually settled down in Australia. Finally, in November 2020, Mr. Westover tracked down a brother of Mr. Arnold in Missouri, who agreed to provide a DNA sample. Later in August 2022, Mr. Westover connected with a man from Australia who was trying to learn about his late father, John Damon, who had told him that he was an orphan from Chicago. DNA samples from Mr. Arnold's brother and Mr. Damon's son indicated a match and proved that Mr. Damon was really Mr. Arnold. It was thrilling, Mr. Westover said. I won't say it's like hitting a lottery because I've never hit the lottery. I'm sure that's a pretty good feeling, but I was just ecstatic. Then came the hard part. Mr. Westover had to break the news to the man from Australia that the father he knew as John Damon was actually an escaped convict who had killed his parents. Mr. Westover said that he had told the man over a video call. That was a really hard conversation to have, Mr. Westover said. Their family didn't know any of this stuff, and so it's hard not to feel bad for them. Chief Britton said that he has since spoken to Mr. Arnold's family in Australia, trying to help answer questions about his history that they knew nothing about. They're getting a new perspective on a man that they had a completely different view of, Chief Britton said. That's got to be hard to process. In getting to know the Damon family, Mr. Westover said that he learned that Mr. Arnold had gone on to become a businessman in Australia and ended up living a great life and apparently changed his ways. He was a great father to them, Mr. Westover said. In March, Mr. Westover and other investigators traveled to Australia to wrap up the case. While they were there, they visited the grave of John Vincent Damon. I'm glad he's dead, Mr. Westover said, explaining that if Mr. Arnold was still alive, 
he would be facing arrest in his 80s. As bad as that sounds, I'm glad because I really wouldn't want to put their family through that, Mr. Westover said. I think they have been through enough already, let alone if I was to take their dad from them. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 6th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Ambria. Thank you for listening.